Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here. It is truly good to be gathered together to worship our God. Amen. Amen. Um, want to welcome all of you who are visiting with us. If you're not already there, please go ahead and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter three. We got a number of people who are here for the first time, and I want to say thanks to you for coming and taking the the risk to come and join uh, us for worship. And uh, really grateful to uh, to see all of you present, to be able to dig into the Word of God together and study together these things uh, about our great God. I want to make a quick announcement um, before we get into uh, the text today. Um, this upcoming Thursday um, and Saturday are important days for us as a church family. Um, on Thursday, we want to invite the entire church to join us in fasting and prayer as we plan to go out on Saturday to Prospect Park and try to reach more people with the gospel. Um, so on Thursday, we're going to have special sessions of prayer via Zoom at 6 a.m. I know that's early, uh, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m. Uh, and you can join us via Zoom for that time uh, of, uh, of prayer. Uh, those will be short sessions, 10 minutes, uh, 15 minutes maximum. Um, and then in person together, at the end of our Bible study Thursday night, we'll take a moment to pray as well um, when we meet uh, at 7 p.m. Um, you're going to get it. If you're a member, you're going to get an email uh, with the Zoom link and all the information related to that. If you're not a member and would like to be a part of that, please, um, please see me afterwards uh, and we'll get you um, the Zoom link so you can join us as well. Um, then on Saturday, on Saturday, we're going to be meeting in Prospect Park. Uh, at the same place where we've been meeting the past few months, Lincoln Road Entrance, the Lincoln Road Entrance. Um, and right inside there, we're going to set up a table. We'll have some chairs. Um, we're going to be passing out Bibles, passing out flyers and invites to people in the park um, to invite them to come together for a Bible study. We're going to meet at 1 p.m. And then at 3 p.m., the Bible study will commence. And I want to encourage you. Uh, we'll send you a, a, a digital flyer. We'll also I have a few think somewhere here um some uh, a few copies of, of a paper flyer if you want that to post somewhere um see me afterwards we can print a few more of those uh, as well so that we can have those to post um but uh i want to encourage you invite your friends invite your neighbors invite your coworkers, invite people who you know need an opportunity to hear the gospel we're going to talk about how the gospel changes everything uh on saturday and truly it has in our lives amen the gospel has changed everything for us. And so we want to talk to the people in the world about the importance of the gospel and how it can change our lives. Um, all right. With that being said, we're, we are moving in in our reading this weekend to the minor prophets. Uh, we're starting in the book of Daniel. Um, and uh, I don't like that term uh, because I think what has happened in many disciples' lives is these books have taken minor importance to us. Uh, and that is not why we call them the minor prophets. We call them the minor prophets because they are minor in length, not in importance. These are a minor in length, but made of major importance in the Bible story. And so I want to encourage you, if you're being tempted to check check out at this point and say, hey, these books are, what are these? I don't, nobody even talks about these. Don't do that. These books are so important to our faith and really critical to the story of scripture. So we're going to start here in the book of Daniel um, and look at the story in Daniel chapter three. 
And I just want to say the best part of this sermon came before the sermon. Uh, it, you, if you if you listen to this chapter read uh, and it did not move you and it did not it did not affect you, then I want to tell you, you weren't listening. This is a powerful story. And we've seen some great stories throughout the Bible as we've been reading through the Bible this year. But this is a truly powerful story. I want to talk to you in this story about the pressure to conform. And then we're going to talk about the power of the fire and the presence within the fire. The pressure to conform, the power of the fire, and the presence within the fire. All right. Uh, I've entitled this sermon today, Fireproof Faith. And Don't you wish you had a faith like that? A faith that would survive through the fire, a fireproof faith. And that's what we see here in the story of Daniel. Let me remind you just some backup in case you haven't got to start into the book of Daniel here. Um, we read from chapter one already. We are introduced to these three young men who show up in chapter three. We're introduced to them first in chapter one, where we are also introduced to a fourth young man named Daniel, uh, who the book is named after. Um, and these four men that we're introduced to, to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these four men um, that we're introduced to are kidnapped. At the beginning of the story, they are kidnapped from their homes in Judah and in Jerusalem. They are carried off into captivity, um, into a foreign land of Babylon. And there they are pressured to conform to the culture that they are now living in. If you don't, if you don't believe me, look at the text of the first few verses of Daniel chapter one and notice what happens here. Not only are they taken from their homeland and carried off into a foreign land, they are also given a foreign education. They are given a Babylonian education. Um, they are taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They are taught also to um to live like Babylonians. They are pressured to eat Babylonian foods. They are pressured into eating foods that were considered unclean according to their religion. And all of this is part of a plan that the king has in order to turn these people into faithful and loyal subjects who will do his bidding in Babylon. Pressure to conform. If that wasn't enough, as soon as they get off, they're given new names. Names you might uh, imagine were probably given to them to uh, to point them towards not their God, Yahweh, but their Babylonian gods. Daniel is called Belteshazzar. Uh, Hananiah is called Shadrach. Mishael is called Meshach. And Azariah is called Abednego. They're given new names. Everything about their life is meant to pressure them in to conforming to Babylonian culture and Babylonian life. And I just want to ask you, try for a moment to imagine being put in their shoes or maybe sandals in their case for just a moment. And I want to ask you, what would you do? You're carried off from your homeland into a foreign land. You're given a new education, a foreign education. You're, you're taught to live according to their culture, their language, their literature. You're given a, an entirely new name. And wouldn't you be tempted to think, if you're an Israelite at this point, where is God? 
Where is the God of our fathers who's delivered us? Where is the God who's kept us through every trial? Where is the God who's proven faithful now? While we're left in a foreign land, isolated and left at the king's discretion to do with us what he will. If this happened to you, what would you do? In fact, we really don't have to be kidnapped in order to experience these kind of pressures today, do we? Truthfully, living in this world and living in this city, we can experience the same kinds of pressures because we are living in Babylon today. We are living in Babylon today. And it doesn't matter whether you grew up in New York City or whether you grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, or whether you grew up in Texas or Alabama or Kentucky or Indiana, the U.S. is Babylon. In fact, it's not just the U.S. You might be thinking, I didn't grow up in the U.S. So I'm not into that. I'm, I haven't been uh, um, affected by that kind of corrupt culture. But in scripture, Rome is Babylon. And from this story on in the book of Daniel, all of the, all of the ancient wicked nations and cities are going to be compared to Babylon. The world is Babylon. And so whether you grew up in Accra or Kingston or Lagos or Venezuela or India or Europe, wherever you grew up under heaven, if it wasn't the new Jerusalem, then you were born in Babylon. You were born in a culture and in a world where, where people are not serving the same God as you. And in every one of these cities, in every one of these countries, in every one of these cultures, there is a pressure to conform. I don't even have to talk about that. You guys know that. You go to work every day. You guys go to school. You see what life is like in this country. And some of you that were immigrants can appreciate this even more. When you came here and you went to school, um, Alice and Yemi, I'm pretty sure when they put when they dropped you in Indiana, they didn't they didn't give you a fufu to eat or a goosey. They teach you to eat American food in school. They're going to give you what Americans do. That's the way it works in cultures. And many of those things are, are, are completely fine and normal. There's, not, there's nothing corrupt about eating uh, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers instead of uh, the food in, in our culture. However, however, we need to recognize that we have all received a Babylonian education. We have all received a foreign education. When you went to school, what were they teaching you? It was not about the fear of Yahweh and how to be faithful to Yahweh. When you went to school, what were they teaching you? We're learning the language and the literature of Americans, or might we say Babylonians. We are learning to live in this culture. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't be so foolish as to think that the education system is not designed to produce something. It is. There's a goal. There's something about the education system that is designed to make you an American with all the beliefs, with all the ideals, with all the values that this culture worships and all the idols of our nation. Don't think, by the way, if you're homeschooled or if you, if you homeschool your kids, that somehow you're exempt. Because truthfully, many homeschool curriculums, even Christian ones, can be just as susceptible to idolatry as public school curriculums. We need to be watchful. We are living in Babylon. And there is a pressure to conform to the culture and to the idols of the world that we are living. 
And that's what makes these four friends all the more remarkable. Returning to our story, as was read earlier in Daniel chapter 1 and in verse, and in verse uh, 8, Daniel and the three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, made up their minds not to defile themselves with the king's food. And they humbly and submissively made a request to be exempt from this requirement. And not only was their request granted, but God gave them far more abundantly than even what they could have imagined. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. At the end of the 10 days, they asked for a test. Give us 10 days where we can eat our foods, vegetables, and water only. And at the end of those 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And let me pause there and say this. Did you notice that there were many young men in Judah who went against what the Torah taught them, who went against what their God desired from them? And they said, hey, our God has abandoned us. We're in a foreign place where we've got to conform to the culture that we're in. So we're going to eat what the king gives us to eat. But at the end of those 10 days, they were healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the food. Verse 16, so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Look at that. Notice this. Their faithfulness in this trial leads others to be ashamed and to recognize, hey, actually, we should have been faithful to our God and did what God told us to do. Verse 17, to these four young men. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And if you're reading the story up to this point, is it not a reminder to us that trusting God and being faithful to God is always the better path? God blessed them. He blessed them in, in ways unimaginable to them at the time because they chose to submit to God rather than to conform to the culture that they were living in. And after God granted Daniel the ability to tell uh, dreams, King Nebuchadnezzar had a problem in chapter two. And Daniel was able to not only tell him what the dream was that he had, but also the interpretation of it. As a result, Daniel's, Daniel's work through the power of God saves the lives of the wise men of Babylon. And as a result of that, God blesses him. And the King Nebuchadnezzar makes him a ruler at the end of chapter two. He makes him a ruler over all the province of Babylon. And Daniel makes a request and he says, hey, make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Put them over the administration of the province of Babylon. And Daniel is serving in the king's court. I want you to notice here what God desires from us is not resistance to all things cultural wherever we live. Do you notice that? Daniel's serving in the king's court. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are serving as rulers over the province of Babylon. What God desires is not resistance to every part of our culture. Rather, 
God desires us to resist all things that he defines as corrupt in our culture. They could live in Babylon. They could serve in Babylon. They could have wives and have kids and, and grow up and build houses and plant gardens and vineyards in Babylon. In fact, that's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah they were supposed to do when they were taken into captivity in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 4 to 7. God told them that to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile, to pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so what I want you to see here is the command is not that, that God's people should live completely isolated lives, hiding in a cave or, or building some far off plot of land and going out and trying to get out of the world. That is not what God desires. The goal is not isolation but it's also not full and total assimilation. God is not wanting his people to be full and totally assimilating into the culture that we are living in, but rather I would suggest peaceful adaptation and faithfulness to Yahweh above all else in the world that we live. Peaceful adaptation and faithfulness to, to Yahweh, even while we care for the culture in which we are living. What we find out though in chapter three is that that wasn't enough for the king. The king has blessed them richly. He's given them these positions of power. He's blessed them with opportunities for service in Babylon. He's blessed them to have a pretty good name. You can imagine they would have been pretty popular. I think that becomes clear in chapter three. But that was never enough for the king because here's the thing about power. Power, if we are greedy for power and if we're seeking power, we will never have enough. And so this is what happens. The king says, hey, it's not enough for me to be king of the most powerful land in the world. I want every person in Babylon to bow the knee to my God. Stand up and say that I am God and that these are the gods. Our culture's gods are going to be their gods. And I don't know if the king really cared about whether or not privately they believed that this idol was really the true God or not that he made. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar probably cared too much about that. What he wanted was public submission to this God, public submission. When the God is praised and everybody falls down, you fall down too and worship this God along with everyone else. And isn't that actually what our culture wants to you know, you think about it in this culture, what's the pressure? Is the pressure, hey, no, you can't worship Yahweh. It's not. People are okay with you worshiping Yahweh as long as it's private. As long as what you do with the Lord is private and it doesn't affect anything in the workplace, anything in the school system, anything in the world, the neighborhood that you live in, you can worship God. What you do privately is, is all up to you. But when you're in public, this is the way you need to act. And this is the way you need to conform to make sure that the values, the ideals, the culture, and the gods of this nation take precedent in our lives. The king wanted more. And that's where we get to see the real power working within the fire. The king becomes angry when he finds out, and by the way, whenever you're successful in anything, you should expect to have haters. And what happens is 
that, that when these three men refused to bow down, some of the Chaldeans, the text says certain Chaldeans in verse eight came forward and brought charges against the Jews. You might imagine they might have been envious of the fact that these foreigners have ascended to such a position in, in Babylon. And so they bring accusations. Hey, King, I know you said everybody's supposed to bow down to the image, but there's some Jews out there that aren't obeying your word. And so they tell the king. And when the king finds out about it, he is enraged. And in anger, he gives orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. Verse 14, the king Nebuchadnezzar says this, responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? You notice this, the egocentricity here. Is it true that you do not worship my gods, that you do not bow down to my image, that you, after all I've done for you, giving you this place of power and position in, in, my, in my kingdom, that you're not going to worship me, that you're not going to bow the knee to me, that you're not going to submit to me? Is it true? Now, verse 15, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of all these instruments and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And I don't know about you, but if I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at this point, I think this is where temptation really starts to set in for me. Where is God? Where is the God of my fathers? You know, we thought he was with us because remember back then when we were faithful to him, the Lord took care of us. And, but now in this moment of great trial and great crises, after I've been given this position of great power and responsibility, now in this moment, in this moment, the Lord is abandoning me. Where is God in this moment? But the power of the fire is revealed in their response in chapter 3 and verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. I love that. That is a, that is a, that is a true courage to say something like that to a king. We actually don't even need to answer you this. However, verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The faith of these friends is revealed in the fire in the fiery trial of life that they experience therein we see their faith our god they say is able and he will deliver that's a statement of trust to be able to say that in the face of a fire a fiery furnace that you're about to be thrown in our god is able and he will deliver us i love the courage and i love the faith 
of these three men. But you know what gets me even more than that? Even if not. Even if not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let me say this. You know, oftentimes what happens in our life is this, and I often hear people say this to me. You know, I sought God and I've trusted God for a long time. And I've been seeking to do his will and I've lived a good life and I've tried to be faithful to God for many, many years. And all these years, I've been asking God for this. And all these years, I've been requesting this of God and God hasn't given it to me. And so I've had enough. I'm tired. I trusted God for so long and the Lord is not coming through for me. What's the point? That is not the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if he does not. What does that tell you about these, these young men? They are not seeking God simply to get something out of God. They are not viewing God as some sort of genie in a bottle that if they just are faithful to him, out will come whatever they want. They'll be rulers over the kingdom of Babylon forever. They understand who God is and they fear God for his own sake. And I want to suggest this is what a fireproof faith looks like. Fireproof faith is not seeking to love and trust and serve God because of what God may do for me. Rather, a fireproof faith says, even if he does not, I will still be faithful to my God. Sometimes what gets revealed in the fiery trials is that we are seeking God, we are trusting God, but we're seeking God and something else. Isn't that true? Sometimes we recognize in the trials that we want God, yes, but there's also God and something else. And God says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And I want you to think about that for a moment, because truthfully, none of us want to be loved the way sometimes we love God. How many of us want to be loved for our money, for our looks, for our wealth, for our possessions, for our children, for whatever we can give? Nobody appreciates that, right? Nobody wants to be loved simply to be used for something. Nobody wants that. Should we not also understand that God does not desire to be loved in that way? God is not looking for a people who, who will be faithful to him as long as he gives them everything that they want. Our God is looking for us to be faithful to him and trust him and love him for his own sake. And brethren, we need a faith like this. A faith that seeks to serve and love Yahweh, not for what he may do for us but rather for who he is in himself. I love this about the three friends. They understood that God would deliver them from death or God would deliver them through death. In fact, that's a really important principle in the Bible. How was Paul in the midst of imprisonment 
able to write a book like Philippians, so full of joy in the midst of imprisonment, confined in a, Ro in a Roman prison. How is Paul able to write a book so full of joy and say things like this, that I will, be exalt, will exalt Christ in my body, whether by life or by death? How could somebody say something like that? Well, because Paul understood this that it was going to turn out for his deliverance, whether that meant deliverance from death and from that trial, or whether it meant deliverance through death, it would turn out for deliverance in his life. Do you believe that about the trials that you're facing? Do you believe that God can deliver you from death or could deliver you through death? His disciples learned that. James was not spared when the church prayed that the Lord would deliver him and the apostle Peter. James was beheaded. He was killed. And yet then the church goes back and prays and Peter is escape, escapes. And I was also, I was often puzzled by that story. Why doesn't James escape? Why does only Peter get out? One of the things that has helped me to understand, to understand and appreciate that story is that story reminds us of a very important truth. Who was delivered? Truthfully, James was in a great, it received a greater deliverance than Peter. Peter had to go back and endure more fiery trials in his life. James was delivered through death. Peter was delivered from death. And in the fiery trials of life, our character, our faith is revealed. Just like these three men, we learn a lot about our faith in the fire in fact peter said that i wonder if peter had this particular story in mind when twice in his first letter he spoke about trials with the imagery of fire listen to this first peter chapter one verse six and seven you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you've been distressed by various trials so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then again, later on in his letter in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some things strange thing were happening to you. You see what Peter is telling them? Don't be surprised if you're faithful to God and if you're loving Jesus and if you're serving him, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come. That's a part of what God has said we will experience in this world. And there's a power in the fire because it's in the fire that our faith or lack of faith gets revealed. Trials have a way of revealing our character. And therefore, they provide opportunities for us to grow in our character and grow in our faith. How do you do this? How do you stand up to the face of some of the one of the most powerful men in the world with this kind of courage, with this kind of courage? There's a lot of answers to that question. But let's return to the story. Let's return to the story and I'll point out a couple things. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. 
when he hears their response. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he is so angry that he begins acting like a crazy fool. In fact, isn't that what anger does when it's left uncontrolled? It leads us to do crazy things that end up exposing our foolishness. And this is what happens in the moment. He heats the furnace seven times hotter than normal to the point that when the men take them into the furnace, the men who are leading them up to throw them in, they are burned alive and die in the presence of the king. The king ends up hurting his own, uh, own army. He heats the furnace seven times hotter, binds them up, throws them in with all their clothes and their caps still on their head. They are thrown into the fire, tied up and bound into the fire. And they fall into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Verse 23 says, then verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar, the king was astounded and he stood up in haste. And he said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What does Nebuchadnezzar see in the fire? Well, the first thing he sees is they're walking. Which should be a shock to us. They were tied up. They were bound. As soon as they're thrown into the fire, we know this fire is real because not only does it burn up the people who threw them in, but also as soon as they go in, the bind, the, 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 the ties that bound their arms and their legs disappear. And all of a sudden, the ones who are thrown in are walking around in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this and he is amazed. God set them free in the fire i want you to think about that for a moment when they were thrown in the furnace was so hot that those who brought them in were burned up and died oftentimes what we want is god to save us and god to deliver us from the fire and we have no interest in the fire itself. But this story reminds us that sometimes the only way for us to be set free is through the fire. That it is actually in the very midst of the fiery trials that there we find our freedom. Because there our faith to God, our faith toward God is revealed. Sometimes God's waits until we are in the fire to set us free for his glory. And that's exactly what happens in the story. But what about this presence in the fire? Three of them get thrown in. All the other people are throwing them in die. But all of a sudden the king looks in and there it is, a fourth. And when he asked to explain, he says the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Kind of an interesting description. Who is this son of the gods? Who is this son of Elohim in the fire? 
In Isaiah 41, verses 1 to 3, Yahweh said this, but now this is what Yahweh says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. What is happening in Daniel chapter 3 is we're being reminded that even in the midst of fiery trials, we are not alone. There is a God who has not abandoned us. There is a God who is still faithful to us. There is a God who has not promised that we will not experience trouble, but has promised that he will be with us in trouble, even in the midst of the fire. And that's exactly what the three men experienced. Had it not been for the fire, they would not have known the depth and the intimacy of God's presence, even in their hardships. Who is this fourth son of the gods? As Christians, I think we may have some idea. This is not the only place in the Old Testament where you see what sometimes are called theophanies, a presence of God. Sometimes you'll see uh, the angel of the Lord being the phrase that is spoken of there. It's hard for us to say for certain. I know for a fact that is Jesus. But many of these stories point us toward Jesus. And even Nebuchadnezzar's language should make us think about the possibility that this is Jesus. How do we know that God will do for us what he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You might say, well, wow, they had a faith that's not like mine. Their faith is strong in the midst of, uh, of temptation. I'm having a hard time not giving in every day on the job. I'm having a hard time it not, not, not acting like my neighbors every day in the neighborhood. Where do I get a faith like this? Well, I think we learned from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A fireproof faith comes from the God who created the fire. But our problem is that oftentimes our eyes are looking at the flames. Our eyes are looking at the fearful people around us. And we have neglected the one whom we ought to fear. Don't fear those who can destroy the body but can do nothing else. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, Jesus said. When we're in the midst of the flames and when we're in the midst of the fiery trials, what do we need to do? Look up. Remember the promises of God. Look at Yahweh. Look at his faithfulness in the past. Look at his faithfulness in the present. And look at his promises for the future. And as we do that, we'll be reminded that actually the greatest fiery trial 
that anyone has ever experienced in this world. God himself sent his son to come down and enter into the greatest fiery trial Jesus took upon himself. And I'm not saying here, as some people do, that Jesus sank into the depths of hell. I don't believe the Bible says that. But I want you to think about this. In the garden, Jesus is literally sweating with drops of blood. He's facing the greatest trial any man has ever experienced, though he committed no sin. He goes through the greatest trial to prove to us once and for all that even when we go through the waters, he will be with us. That even when we pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over us. That even when we walk through the fire, we will not be burned. Because Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, is our Savior. We just finished the book of Ezekiel. One of the things that Ezekiel said over and over and over and over again was that everything Yahweh was doing, he did so that they would know that he is Yahweh. So that everyone would know that Yahweh is the true God. Why would God wait until the very midst of the fire to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, the answer comes in the story with Nebuchadnezzar's response. You know what happens when the king sees the fireproof faith of these three men. They come out and you can't even smell fire on them. I spent yesterday grilling all day long. And, and by the time I was done, not only had I lost some of my hair along my arm, but you could smell it. And I came home and the first thing I did was jump in the shower because you could smell it. And I didn't touch the fire. I was just working around the fire. When they come out of the fire, you can't even smell fire on them. None of their caps are affected. None of their trousers are damaged. None of the hairs of their head were even singed. This is the work of a God greater than all of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. This is a, a, a God who can deliver out of the hand of the most powerful man in the world. And so as they come out, Nebuchadnezzar responds and he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb for limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. No other God can deliver in this way. And I want to leave you with this thought. If you find yourself day after day struggling with pressure to conform to the corruption of the culture around you. Take a moment, take some time to ask yourself, what God am I trusting in? What God am I worshiping? What God am I serving? And then ask yourself this second question. Is he able to deliver me? Our God is able. Our God is willing. 
our God is Yahweh. And even if he does not, we will still serve him. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for this moment to be in your word. And we thank you for this incredible story. And we pray for a faith like that. We know God and we confess to you that oftentimes when we're pressured to conform, we give in. We, rather than trusting in you and being faithful to you, oftentimes what we do is we try to fit in as best we can, even at the expense of disobeying your commands. And I pray, God, that you would show us the same kind of grace and mercy that you have for many of your servants throughout history, through all of your servants who have failed miserably in this. But please, oh God, leave us not in the depths of our sin and depravity. Teach us to have a faith like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. A faith that leads us to be able to live in this city, but not become like this city. To rise above the corruption of our culture. To faithfully serve you in whatever role you may give us. Through the fire. So that one day when we stand before you, we'll hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we pray for the people of this city. We want the world to know that you are God and that there is truly no other God that can deliver in this way. So help us to be faithful as your servants so that the people around us can see in us the power of our God, Yahweh, at work. In Jesus we pray, amen.